When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The name of the show is so very wrong about games. It is a board gaming podcast about board games. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm very well, Mike. How are you? Fantastic. You know, I'm feeling good because I feel unburdened. We got together to play a game today. It was Huey, Dewey, Warm Boy, and the two of us, which, by the way, is the largest gathering we've had in quite some time with our uh, social bubbling the way it is. It just so happened that everyone was available. And I unburdened myself after the game. I explained to Dewey that although we trash talk all the time and we say terrible, terrible, terrible things to each other under the guise of friendship, that it is a thankless and difficult job to be a rules explainer. And when a rules explainer gets a couple of things around the margins wrong, or even significant things, it doesn't even matter how significant the, the error is, whether it's insignificant or, or significant, it is best to lay off because... I, I don't want to... You shouldn't really say wrong either. It was just sort of a sort of outlying circumstances. Right, but the obligation of the game explainer is to juggle many different things. To be transparent, to keep the game moving, to make sure that everyone's having a good time, and any failure, I, I can cert state with relative certainty, is felt more keenly by the explainer than anybody else. And since very few people take the time to say, thank you for that rules explanation, that was very clear, free of error, and really facilitated a good time by all. In fact, it sounds strange even saying it. But we get crap every time we get something wrong. And so I explained to Dewey, Dewey, I realize you don't mean it, but please stop. No jokes about getting things wrong, Dewey. It feels really bad. We had a moment of understanding, and I think we're going to move forward in a spirit of friendship and hopefulness. Oh, let's hope. And about being thanked for, you know, a great explanation and a good time. And I'm sure if it ever happens, someone will thank you. <laughs> so we talk about board games here on the show. <laughs> Certainly not about friendship, because I don't think there is any to be had here. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, The Aurus. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter, and our topic this week, which is boxes. We normally talk about what's in the boxes. Today, we're going to be talking about boxes. Boxes. Ooh, so exciting. I, actually, I'm excited. I have a lot of thoughts about yeah, boxes. Okay, good. So the game we reviewed exactly to the minute last year, Catacombs. Mark, I think I have to sadly say I don't think I've played Catacombs since we reviewed it. I haven't either. I think I have. I got a Kickstarter from it and still haven't tried them out, the neoprene mats the neoprene for all mats. the levels. And I think it's still sat on the shelf. It's just, 
it's one of those games where you just need a lot of people and there hasn't been very many gatherings. It's like a family type game, you know, sort of like a holiday type thing. And there hasn't been anything like that. So there has not been time for it. Well, like many fixed count games, it being a fixed player count is somewhat unfortunate. You necessarily have to have four heroes, which means given that one of the, one player is going to be the sort of dungeon keeper, I can't remember the specific term that is used in Catacombs, Overlord, whatever. Evil Flicker. Evil Flicker. You need three players or five players or two players. With two players, you might as well be doing something else. And with three players, everyone's got two characters. Yeah, it, it's awkward. Fixed player count, much, much too long. Best played where you're being flexible and not really following the rules, because otherwise it's just an endless slog of boards. I, for one, am still very much looking forward to the follow-up from Pete Ruth and Mark Thomas, the authors of The Only Game That Matters, Seal Team Flicks, who are going to be putting out Phantom Division with Elzra. Elzra being the people that put out Catacombs, and they're gonna and Phantom Division looks like it's going to be amazing. And then there might be two games that matter, and then I'll be very confused. Yeah, which is odd, because there's Elzer's putting out Monster Pit soon out on Kickstarter. So that just means this other game that you just spoke of is going to be pushed back even further. I hope not. That would make me sad. So yes, Monster Pit's coming up soon. Another expansion for Catacombs. So we'll see how that goes. And that is the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. Now, on to the games we played this week. Mark, what did you play? So a while ago, we played Roman Roll, which is pitched as a roll and write, but is not, by David Serce and Nick Shaw of PSC Games. We got this as a review copy, and I decided to take a look at the solo rules, because I, as I've observed a couple times, if David Serce has a solo mode for a game that he did not design, I generally want nothing to do with it. But if he has designed a solo mode for one of his games, it's often quite good. The best example of this is Anachrony. The solo version in the first version of Anachrony, there's a new solo version apparently, maybe he's mucked it up. But the first solo version of Anachrony is marvelously simple and quite nice, and I've tried it a couple times and I've had a great time with it. And the solo mode for Roman Roll is very straightforward. You have a deck of AI cards and you flip them over and basically most of the time it just says draw some rubble on the, on the map in this area. And it blocks where you can build and does some other things. I really enjoyed it. So Roman Roll is, I think, a solid middleweight Euro. Kind of Euro where you're gathering resources and building things. And there's a couple of other ways to get points. It's not as clean as quite as I would like. And the uh, dice activation is interesting, but it's not quite a roll and write. But that's one of the reasons why I like it. It's, it's dice drafting. And I still have the same complaints that I have about playing Roman Roll with actual humans, which is to say the rules for building are much more convoluted and detail-oriented and indeed component-heavy than nearly anything else in the game by quite a factor, but it isn't necessarily the most lucrative way to go about doing things. It's also thematically the most important thing. You know, you're supposed to be rebuilding Rome after a great fire, as opposed to, say, reconquering Spain or reconquering France or what have you. But reconquering France and rebuilding a whole bunch of those roads tends to be much, much better than, say, building up your capital city. And also, again, much simpler. And that, to me, is not a serious critique. It's more just a thematic niggle that I have with Roman Roll. The component elements could have easily been done by tokens or anything, but it is kind of nice to, to write with dry erase markers when they work. But sometimes you smudge out that building and you can't remember if it was an amphitheater or it was a legionnaire's camp or, or, or what have you. So Roman Roll I enjoy. I think it's a solid middleweight Euro, as I say, with a, with a pretty decent solitaire mode. I just find it strange the way that it was marketed as a roll and write, despite the fact it doesn't have any of those features. 
And David Surtse is still a, uh, an interesting designer, even if a lot of his stuff isn't calibrated to my particular tastes. I'm interested in trying Ro Roman Roll again, preferably with more than two players, and see whether specifically that city-building element turns out to have more of a payoff. If it doesn't, I think I might have to consa consign Roman Roll to a near-miss category. If the city-building really it turns out to be engaging, or if there's some sort of emergent dynamic whereby these different elements play off each other in a more satisfying way, rather than, here's all the stuff about building, but then all the there's this other stuff which seems a lot more simple and straightforward and lucrative then that might prove to be something interesting. But I did enjoy spending time with the solo mode. If you have a Roman role and you haven't played the solo mode and you're interested in solo gaming, I can recommend it. And that was my further experiences with Roman Roll. I played in a couple of actual dice games. First one being Dice Forge by Regis Bonanese and published by Leblid. So in Dice Forge, you actually create your dice. It has this neat little mechanism where you have this tool and you pop out the dice faces and you plug in, you know, different you know, extra gold or extra victory points or also multipliers. And there's this whole card system where as you roll the dice and get these resources, you can buy victory points or buy, you know, super fancy dice faces or all sorts of different things. It's interesting how it changes up every game, you know, changes different spots. And it's not too bad on, on board game arena because in dice forge, you roll on everybody's turn and you slowly build up resources until it's your turn and then you you spend them right so it takes care of all that for you and then it's your turn and and you spend your resources and off it goes and when it comes back to you you have all your resources and you know so it's it works out nicely and i like how it works it's sort of like a deck builder but you get to roll dice rolling dice is fun rolling dice is fun do you get to do anything to roll the dice in board game arena no oh, you don't even you don't even click the button to say roll dice that actually seems like a little bit of a shame to it, it it does that's what well <laughs> this is this being said this makes me want to play the game again sure like seeing how it works and and knowing that how how nice it works and actually wanting to build the dice makes me want to try try it again because i only played it once before yeah i played Rattlebones, and i very much liked playing with the physical dice but the game itself didn't really have any payoff kapow which i know you mentioned in our last Pledge of Indifference appears to have a similar dice-building element. Yeah, it's superheroes, so I'll take another look at it because I know it popped up in a couple places, so it's getting some decent buzz, so I do want to take a look at it again. I've never played Dice Forge. Would I like it? No. Okay. Too late. <laughs> and it just is. It's literally, you know, getting resources. I like resources. a lot of light things. Well, maybe you like it. Wow. Dice, I'm not, well, you asked. What do you want from me? I feel like I've been pigeonholed. All right. Second dice game, <laughs> Martian Dice. This is by Scott Alms and published by Tasty Mental Games. And this is a great filler. You're waiting for one of your members to show up or it's, you know, finishing off the night or whatever. You're simply rolling the dice. It's either going to be chickens, cows, humans, flying saucers, or tanks. So all the tanks you have to take because they're the nasty humans, you know, keeping you away. And then after that, you pick the die faces you know, a, a particular die face, and if you, and you have to take all of that. And if it's a human, a cow, or a chicken, if you've already got some of them, you can't choose those. And so if at any time you can't take a die, then you square off the UFOs to the tanks, and if you have enough, then you beat them back and you score points. It's a fantastic little game. Dice chucker at its core, you're just throwing tons of dice and re-rolling and re-rolling until you crap out and then score some points or not. If you have too many tanks, then it just goes to the next player. And first to 25 wins. Great little game. Martian dice. Reminds me a little bit of Heck Barbecue, the 
timely game of chickens barbecuing worms in the in the dice selection mechanism you know you, you can't take a number you've already taken or a die face that you've already taken you keep going until you bust but on the topic of chickens i didn't know that ufos cared about chickens uh you know they take cows they take humans i think the chickens they're just the less the less talked about victims of ufo abduction well the, the, them and moose Yes. As we all know, the UFOs, they can't resist beaming up moose. Well, they, the UFOs don't want to talk about the moose abduction because they, you know, bad, yeah, bad. Bad, bad case of dynamite bad, moose. Bad Jojo there. Yeah, absolutely. I played another solo game. I played a game of Asgard's Chosen. Asgard's Chosen is the incredibly bizarre, but very engaging, kind of sort of almost like Mage Knight, legit, game of territory control. The solo version that is published in the box of Asgard's Chosen is, shall we say, not terribly good. Mechanically, it works fine. It's just really trivially easy. It is very, 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 very simple, and you never really feel under threat. As I mentioned in a review of Asgard's Chosen over a year ago, there is a variant on BoardGameGeek that makes it considerably more difficult and ups the tension considerably, whereby sometimes you have to appease gods twice in order to double up the victory conditions if you haven't gone fast enough. So it adds more time pressure, it adds another loss condition, and it sometimes means you have to double expend on some of those gods, and depending on when they come up, it can lead to a very different experience as to which gods you need to appease, because that's the fundamental victory condition of Asgard's chosen. I lost, I lost badly. I made some very bad choices. It was one of those losses where sometimes in a solo game you lose and you figure, oh, well, you know, the, the cards came up in a bad order. There was a little bit of that, but here I, I just messed up. I didn't focus on... I always kept thinking, oh, I have more time to conquer towns. Towns are very difficult to get, and they don't give you any sort of short-term immediate benefit, but you need them for a lot of your victory conditions later on. And I kept thinking, next round I'll take a town. Next round I'll take a town. Never did. Paid As for it. Asgard chose... Mark chose poorly. <laughs> yes, Asgard chose, and they chose not Mark. <laughs> I really like Asgard's Chosen. It's one of those relatively obscure games that I always point to that the market kind of passed away, passed behind, and for no good reason. It really does some interesting stuff with, with its hand management slash deck building. Again, kind of sort of like Mage Knight did, but you see a lot more deck churn in Asgard's Chosen than you do in Mage Knight, so it feels a little bit more like a conventional deck builder in that sense. But the way it dovetails with board control, specifically, let's call let, let, let's call it what it is, I was left a little disappointed by our experiences with the Lost Ruins of Arnok, and I wanted that tighter integration of card play and board control, and that's precisely what Asgard's Chosen does so well, and so I went to that. I was very pleased despite having lost, and I thoroughly recommend the variant on BoardGameGeek for the more difficult and more tense solo experience, and that was a very satisfying game of Asgard's Chosen. And if it's too difficult and you want something very easy, boy, do I have a game for you. <laughs> Aliens Bug Hunt by Ryan Miller and published by Upper Deck Entertainment. We pulled this out. Very exciting. You open up your little ammo box and you, and you have all your typical characters apone and drake and and all the boys are there and you gear up and you're ready for the alien and ripley of course and ripley everyone's there yeah, i said yeah. everybody what, what do you want well you, you then said all the boys uh, well i'm sorry but... and let us let us acknowledge that one of the geniuses of james cameron movies of the time is that they had excellent heroines it's true and then the party started and never ended yeah so you okay you know that that scene in the Aliens movie, where all the the Marines are laughing about how easy this is going to be, 
and Ripley knows better and knows that this is going to be an utter massacre. And then the Marines rush out of the APC and then they kill all the aliens in the credits roll. And Ripley's like, well, I guess I was wrong. This was going to be easy. That's how the movie goes, right? Exactly. Oh, okay. That's how our movie went. Yeah, so this is this is absolutely true to the movie about how the aliens are incredible suckers and very easy to mow down. And uh, being a colonial marine on LV-426 is perhaps one of the safest retirements one could ask for. It's true. It was like target practice. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what happened. There was some decision making to be made. It had some interesting things to do with, you know, your, your movement and which way to go around the map. And you can, uh, I like games that you can do that where you can manipulate the map where you know how the spawn is going to happen. And so you can sort of manipulate the map to your advantage. So that was very interesting. I like the dice, how they worked, how uh, you didn't actually place aliens, you placed the dice. And what they did was interesting. And when you attack an alien, you roll that die. Yeah, you roll that die. And uh, it's nice and easy. I just want to comment. It was a fascinating inversion of what we're normally used to. It was so counterintuitive, not in a bad way, but just in a very interesting expectation subverting way. Whereby when you're attacking an enemy, you roll that enemy. You don't pick up some other die to determine what happens to them. No, no, no. You pick up the enemy and roll them. And that's that's how you determine the attack. Yeah. It, yeah. There was a little bit of a disconnect there where people would grab, you know. Other dice other or dice look the for side. the other. Sh- where are the shooting dice? Yeah, like, oh, wait a minute. And I really liked. I'm not sure if you liked it or not. I did like how the rules were broken up. You open up this file and everyone got their little assignments and it actually broke the rules down into different categories. So I'm going to suspect that you like that because you're not the one who had to understand the rule set. Uh, Maybe. No, well, I just thought it was an interesting, you know, twist, you know, something different. Conceptually, I thought it was great, especially since at the the way the game is packaged, it's a four player game, again, fixed player camp game. And at the start of every booklet, it says, okay, you're the Intel sergeant. And then it says, the intel sergeant is the most important job. And then someone sitting uh, uh, over next to you might be the comms specialist. And the comms specialist's booklet says, okay, you have the most important job. And that part was cute. But in terms of understanding a simple rule set, I found it a barrier to proper understanding. Because when I first pulled out the game and I read all four, they're, they're very scant rule sets, but there are four of them. I read all four rule sets and I did not, I did not know how the game was played. I didn't even have a, a sort of structure in my mind about how the game proceeded. I then, again, had to go on BoardGameGeek, where fans have created a consolidated rules document that combines all the rules. It's like, oh yeah, this is an incredibly simple game. <laughs> this is how the game works. Conceptually, it was neat. Execution, didn't quite like how the rules were laid out. The thing that I liked about Aliens Bug Hunt was, based on how the movement and firing rules worked, you were actually incentivized, as we discovered, to create interesting like fire team situations, where my squad was a tile away from your squad, and we could support each other both in terms of facilitating movement and facilitating fire screening, because you are not allowed to leave a tile with xenomorphs there unless there's another squaddy there, or there's another squaddy in your destination. And it was generally better to have it be the latter rather than the former, because that way you could leave where the danger was and not worry about it. Which leads to one of my first major thematic disconnects. And look, I'm not trying to nitpick here. And when it, when a game purports to be very thematic, I don't tend to focus that much on the thematic integration. But Aliens is very iconic. And in very particular ways. And the Xenomorph character, or race, or species, is also very iconic. And one thing that the Xenomorphs are not is slow. In the game Bug Hunt, the Xenomorphs are very slow. They move a tile at a time, whereas the human characters move at minimum two, and that's only if they face serious obstacles. They can move three if they're really booking it. 
So right away, I was like, mm, that's a little weird. As for the overall difficulty, I can't tell how much of it was us rolling really well and how much of it was the game itself. Because again, when you attack the Xenomorphs in Bug Hunt, you roll them. One through four, the aliens die. On a five, they survive. On a six, they survive and hit you. At the end of the game, of 12 Marines, every player gets three Marines, only one had died. And that, I'm sorry, is again thematically very strange. I don't necessarily demand a you know movie representational body count, but it was just very odd. Now, the number of times we would pick up two dice and murder both aliens was very high. It was a very, very, very high proportion of the time. And so I have to think that that influences some of what's going on. I don't know that anyone at the table was particularly enthused about the overall experience. Mechanically, uh, you know, I, I've commented before, there are a lot of co-op or semi-co-op, very simple tile layers where you're running around on a tile trying to find the objective uh, markers and trying to avoid some, some dangers. And I've got no objections to that style of game. I find them perfectly pleasant and diverting. And indeed, the experience of playing Bug Hunt was perfectly pleasant and diverting. It was just very easy and it was so easy that it was problematic from a game perspective, and that just sucked us all out of the experience, because all four people around that table loved the movie, and it didn't feel like the movie at all, in part because it was so easy. There are rules to increase the difficulty. If I were to ever play again, I would absolutely implement all of them straight off the top, because then, worst case scenario, the game is too hard, in which case, it's like the movie. <laughs> which is what it should be. Yeah. So, like, overall, mechanically, it was cute. It had a number of little elements. There was a little bit of decision-making there. It's very rules-light once you internalize the confusingly laid-out rules document. But way too easy. So I'd have to see how it feels and or I would want to pay closer attention to our actual the actual distribution of dice results. Because it maybe it was just fluky, fluky rolls. Look, if you're going to have a game of combat and dice-based combat, sometimes you're going to have fluky results, where they're all terrible or all great. But as a result, the, my overall experience of Aliens Bug Hunt was it was just kind of weird. It was an odd experience. The Spiritual Society for Murderous Anti-Colonialism, or SMAC, convened once again to play Spirit Island, and I got to try a spirit I've been wanting to try for some time, namely Starlight Seeks Its Form. This is a very high-complexity spirit, that is basically a build-your-own-spirit. It's got a whole bunch of different growth tracks, and you pick from which one you, you take, and every time you empty out a growth track, you pick from one of two growth options. And you have three growth options over the course of the turn, and I figure three growth options is more than enough always. And so I made very poor decisions about how I, I grew, and I grew myself into a corner where I could never get any major powers because my power generation was never high enough, and I could never really liberate myself from the same three growth options every turn, which was bad. In short, it gave me too much freedom. Sure enough, it was a very high-complexity spirit with a lot of latitude about how you want to develop things. And it turns out that I just didn't have a mind to do it properly. I left myself in a position whereby I was able to deal with my short-term threats on my board. And then every once in a while, I would be like, Mark, can you help me out over here? And I'd look over and say... Absolutely not. And so it turned me into a very selfish, very fragile, narrowly focused spirit, only able to keep my corner of the world clean. So not helpful. I really like that there's enough latitude in some of the spirits in Spirit Island to really gel with your playstyle, not gel with your playstyle, or, in this case, give you just enough rope to hang yourself, which is precisely what I did. I don't know if I would try it again, because... 
uh, as I say, it's not suited to my to my set of choices. I've actually been thinking a lot about playing Shadows Flicker Like Flame again, my favorite spirit. I hadn't played it in a long time. And I actually was so moved that I, uh, by some questions about a specific card, namely Favors Called Do, that I had to email the designer and ask him, okay, what exactly is going on here? And he gave me, as is usually the case, a load of very, very thoughtful, very evocative information about the thought process behind one card in Spirit Island. And this is one of the reasons why this universe that's been created is so both mechanically and thematically satisfying. So another great session of Spirit Island, another exploration of new design space, and another realization about me and about how I'm stupid and not able to make long-term calculations. And so that was Spirit Island, specifically the newest expansion, Jagged Earth. You and I got to play Flick Fleet by Jackson Pope and Paul Wilcox, published by Yuri Dice Games. And it was a perfectly balanced scenario. No problems with the balance at all. That being said, I am enjoying Flick Fleet more and more every time I, I play it. It has very interesting mechanics about, you know, deploying bombers and fighters and how they work. And even though you can't flick as far as you want. Walker <laughs> smash! Well, I think this time we had a, a better table. Yes. It, it was much the, larger than the first time. I'm wondering maybe that's why the scenario didn't work out quite right and maybe mm. the design of the scenario didn't realize that you're going to be able to to accurately flick a die eight foot distances <laughs> well i think there's a certain flexibility in the play area and the, the play area being larger certainly accommodated your preference with things because you, you just you just like things to be on a larger scale you don't like having to measure by inches you'd rather deal in in, in sweeping movements which is fine it's just a natural sort of course uh, source of preference I, too, enjoy Flickly more and more as I play it. Any game where you have some science fiction unit and you have to manage systems, I'm usually on board. Whether it's diverting power in the case of Talon, whether it's activating subsystems in the case of Flickfleet, I'm there, I'm sold. And that's how Flickfleet works. You activate two, any two systems on your capital ship you want, and that's how it goes. One of the things I liked it, I liked it about Armada as well. There was a certain sense of managing systems. And in Flick Fleet, you also get a lovely little tactile element of flicking stuff around, and we're always there for that. Now, can I really blame a scenario book for saying Walker is a pure and decent individual and deserves more points and a better tactical position and Mark ships are going to be nerfed? I can't really blame I it for that. I think every rule book should say something like that, actually. Well, it was a strange sort, a strange way to frame it. I've, I, It's one of those things where I, I posted about this on Twitter. I, I felt gaslit by the scenario. It was so obviously on its face problematic, I had to assume that I was doing something wrong. So I had to reread the scenario five times. I had to reread the rules for mines three times. I had to reread the rules for stealth ships three times to make absolutely sure that I wasn't missing something tremendously obvious. Because in the scenario, one side gets more points and the other side, one of their ships gets nerfed on top of getting fewer points. Now, in fairness, and I should just say, the quote-unquote default way to play Flick Fleet is to give both sides a certain number of points and they just buy whatever ships they want. I think it's time we graduated to that locker. Oh, yeah. Well, not only it was points and nerfed ships and the timing of the deployment all were in my favor. It was fairly ridiculous. It, it, it was reasonably ridiculous. And it's a testament to how much I like the game that I, I although I was, I was more confused than salty, because I still got to play with my ships. It's true. In the moments before they met their fiery end at the hands of Walker's very successful fleet deployment. And so I think, honestly, next time we play Flick Fleet, which should A, be soon, 
B, it should just be, here's 50 points, buy some ships. Okay. And, and then we can play with the toys we want to play with. And if we, if we build a bad fleet, then that's on us, not necessarily on the scenario. And there you have it. So Agreed. That's Flick Fleet. Played another game of Civilization A New Dawn with the Terra Incognita expansion. With only two players. With only two players. And I think the two-player uh, two version worked quite well. I don't think it suffered from not being multiplayer. There's no fudgy extra rules. You just start with a smaller map. Uh, the player interaction in Civ A New Dawn is always focused around combat anyway. And you're always going to be picking on your neighbors situationally for very specific transactional types of gains anyway. And so I don't think it really suffered from the absence of the multiplayer dynamic, although I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that. No, that's exactly what I was going to get to. So I think I just have to internalize that this Civ game focuses more on combat than other Civ games do. That is true. Your your victory conditions are such, and the map is such, that you're probably going to come to blows with a greater certainty than you might imagine. It's also one of those games, and this was true of the base game without the expansion as well, where the tempo is a little bit off. It's one of those games where nobody has any victory conditions, nobody has any victory conditions, nobody has any victory conditions. Oh, someone has all the victory conditions now. They kind of build up in parallel. Tribune, premise into Paris is like that. And I think in future, when explaining Civ A New Dawn, I'm going to be, I'm going to stress that. It's like, here are the victory conditions. You need to be satisfying a certain number of them. They're probably all going to come very close to each other on their heels. And I do, that is one of the areas where the expansion, I think, really improves things. It's a very, very simple element, but just having more victory conditions. I remember playing the base game after the third or fourth game of the base game, you'd see the same victory conditions all the time, and it just felt the same. Despite the fact that in Terra Incognita, you always have the fort victory conditions, which in turn, as well, encourage conflict because you're going to be fighting over them. You see a greater variety, and sometimes you need to be pushing for idols, uh, for wonders. Sometimes you need to be pushing for other weird things. Sometimes they're very situational. Sometimes they're a little more uh, general. But it does lead to an interesting divergence in terms of play experience. And it's still an awkward, strange game. A lot of the conventions of civilization games are not present in A New Dawn, and it doesn't really ape a lot of the conventions of the genre. But I enjoy it. It's an interesting little puzzle, and I like pulling the different gears, and the card activation system is a joy. It is. I have to focus more on that. I seem to be just letting everything drop off the end and always having to think that I have to do it, you know, when it's at its full, you know, and I have to just internalize that things don't have to be played that way. Well, it's not a it's not a rondelle, but it's like a rondelle in that you could do the quote unquote obvious next move, and you can play on autopilot and just cruise around the resources until you have enough resources for something huge, and then go do that. And I see play, people play Antica that way, and it's fine. And for beginners, it's a, it's a great on ramp to the game. Similarly, in Sivanu Dawn, you can always play the card in the last slot, which is nominally the most powerful, but. It's those decisions to get off that treadmill and take the less efficient, opportunistic, short-term move. Those kinds of trade-offs are really cool. And I think one of the reasons why I enjoy A New Dawn the way I do. Yeah, you can even set up your cards so they start falling in a certain order. And so you can start letting them fall off the end in the right order, too. It's I really love it. I'm not really at that level yet. We'll be looking forward to new playings of Terra Incognita going forward. And this is designed by designer James Kniffen and published by Fantasy Flight Games. Now, speaking of another game that has tricky and or everyone had all the victory conditions at the same time, mm. we played a game today called Hellenica. 
designed by Scott Demers and published by Mr. B Games. So this is a game that was kickstarted back in 2018, and it has just had a recent uh, expansion that finished on uh, Kickstarter as well in June of 2020, Leaders and Legends. And it has all sorts of plastic, and it's sort of Roman, Greco, Greek, Greek, lots of gods, lots of buildings, lots of worshipping. I really liked it. So it too is a city kind of thing, but rather than trying to present the grand sweep of history from the Stone Age all the way to space travel, as many Civ games do, it's more firmly situated in antiquity, much like Antica or something of that era. So you're going to be playing as city-states, the Spartans, the Athenians, the Kerkarians, the Trojans, etc., etc. And the plastic that I have, I have a, I have a retail copy that doesn't have the plastic figures for army units, but there's nonetheless always going to be plastic for all the buildings. And that's the key hook of how the engine works. Basically, you have these activation cubes, and what they do is they activate a building, and all buildings of that type will give you some benefits. So if you have two academies in a city, activate one of the academies, both of them will trigger, you get two philosophers. And let me tell you, whoever has the most philosophers wins, because, you know, philosophers are obviously better than any other kind of resource. You just need to accumulate them. And just yes, them. Mark, your education has paid off well. My life has to mean something, Walker. So yeah, it has a it has a little bit of Clash of Cultures feel to it, Mark, because you have this uh, tableau in front of you where you are putting these cubes and it gives you advantages, right? Clash of Cultures doesn't work in a way that you're going to be removing them to do your actions, but the whole right-hand side of the board is pretty well the same thing where you're getting better abilities, better actions, the more you go up. And I really like that part of the game. The victory conditions that you alluded to at the beginning are there are private victory conditions and public victory conditions. The private ones are kept secret, and the public ones are the same for everybody. And at the end of any turn, if you're able to satisfy three of them, you just say you've satisfied three of them, and then the game ends. I liked how it became kind of sort of clear which ones people were gunning for. I thought that it was a good balance between secrecy and openness. True, but the part about some cards being the same I did not like. Yeah, so there I think it's really important that people internalize that the card will tell you how many copies of that there are in the deck. So, for example, if you have the card that says you need more of X than any other player, and you look down at the corner and you say, oh, there are three copies in the deck, that increases the likelihood that someone else at the table has it. That might increase the competition for that specific thing. Now, is it just random whether or not the other card's in the game, the card is in the game and whether or not another player keeps it? Yes. So I agree with you that it is potentially a, a, an awkward transition there. But in terms of just the information management, I thought it worked out pretty reasonably. I do feel that some of them are just flatly easier to get than others. For example, I had one that says you need to control four academies. Building four academies is trivial. Holding on to them, reasonably so. You, on the other hand, had a number of more than anyone else objectives. Yeah, and it, it was possible for me to win in the first turn, which is pretty crazy well yeah possible but not very plausible especially since the first round is going to proceed relatively similarly for everybody true in the second round it was two, the second and third round it was one token if someone if dewey had used one token of the god then i would have had it and in the third turn if you had either a lost a unit or b not produced one more unit then i would have had it in the third turn as well. oh i didn't know you were that close yeah yeah one one victory condition was have the most gods of tokens the other one was have most land units right and wow then, and then okay wow that i i didn't know how close on a knife edge it was like that 
Huh. Well, anyway, I'll have to pay more attention to that because we probably will be playing again because Dewey and Huey were very positive about the game. And Dewey remarked that he never gets to play the same game twice. So I think we should... Well, I think I definitely want to play it. It's, I think it's, it's going to be one of these games that plays completely different the second time. It's I got hope. a huge learning curve. Not the fact that it's complicated. It's just the fact that there's a lot going on. And as soon as you internalize how everything sort of works together, I just, and the fact that it's a, like an engine building type game. Yes. That you'll build the engine completely different now that you know how everything intertwines with each other. I enjoyed it. I, 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 I liked it. I don't know. I have some concerns. One of them is the time. We It took us about four hours with rules explanation. And four hours with rules explanation and five people, that's almost a short game of Francis Tresham's Civilization. And I vastly prefer that, not just because mechanically I prefer it, but also because it gives you a greater sense of sweep. Because Hellenica didn't really feel like much of a Civilization game to me. It felt like a Troops on a Map game with a little bit of engine management. And there are troops on a map games that I prefer. Like, for example, Kemet, you buy lots of toys and you manage a little bit about your resources in terms of prayer points and other things. And you're going to be in and out in 75, 75 to 90 minutes. And you're going to get a lot of flavor as with it, too. Now, I'm not saying that Kemet is just the same, but... And for troops on a map, I felt it was very weak in the combat area. I didn't like the combat system, Mark, because there wasn't enough attrition. As soon as you had a decent combat troop say built together they could have they can almost walk through everything there is a chance that you'll get you know if you'll fail a, a have a bad role and then you'll lose out but even then it seems though once you're doing well then you'll keep doing well good combat formations are in point of fact surprisingly brittle in a number of ways for example if you're relying on the extra combat boost from combined arms if you have both infantry and cavalry in a unit they get to roll an extra die but dice are not additive you only ever take the highest result and the moment you lose a troop, it is usually the opponent that gets to decide who which one dies. And so if you have a bunch of strong infantry and one cavalry unit, well then, that bonus that you're getting is dependent on that one unit surviving. And as you say, there are lots of other tricks up people's sleeve. If you're not as strong militarily, you can exploit the god one-shots, which are kind of, not quite one-shots, the renewable one-shots, or you could exploit something else. I, I will grant you, though, that it certainly seems like the moment you've spent all the time getting a strong army together, which is difficult based on how movement works, then they can do a lot. But then you just have the one army that's just marching along. Because a lot of it is actually about not infrastructure and not even really supply, but just getting your people where you want to go. Because the, you have precious few actions, and every time you do a movement, you can only target one area. So part of you wants to split up so you can conquer lots of territory, but then if you have five different weak armies, you can't move any of them with any great success. Anyway, those trade-offs I found kind of interesting, but maybe in a more system mastery kind of way. So I, I fear that experienced players could roll over people. And there's a little, a little bit of a weird dynamic where if you had one front and you suddenly got attacked from behind, it would be really hard to get back to defend yourself, and you could leave yourself open very badly. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think making a, a, a massive army to steamroll your opponents is not necessarily a smart way to do it. It's, you know, a trade-off between a tip-of-the-spear offense and, and being able to defend, defend your people. One thing that I, I didn't like about Hellenica, in addition to the fact that it was a, a little bit longer than I, I felt it, it warranted, 
was I felt the quality of the components was both uneven and not particularly easy to use. So there's a different kind of plastic sculpt for every building. So there's a whole bunch of different bags of buildings floating around, a whole bunch of different bags of tokens, your own bag of tokens. There was a lot of moving stuff around just to get what you needed to do for relatively quick turns. I wasn't a huge fan of that. And honestly, some of the graphics I felt were very, very sort of early aughts bad CG. Like the gods, a lot of the gods looked a little dicey. Did not appreciate looking at those components. <laughs> and the fact there was no player aid as well was kind of rough. Yes, I think I would have to they're, they're, print something out so as to summarize. The order of adjudication at the end of every turn was very consequential, and so we'd want to do that. So the, the, there's a fair amount going on in Hellenica that I very much enjoyed. And given the enthusiasm of other people at the table, we'll probably be playing it again, and I don't regret that. But all told, it probably wasn't my favorite of the type of game, and I'd be interested to see, I would hope to think, that future playings will play out differently, either by virtue of different choices along the tech tree and or different victory conditions coming out. Time will tell. If it plays out the same way again, roughly the same dynamics facing the same challenges both internally and externally, that would probably be the last time I'd want to play it because, you know, a four-hour game that always plays out feeling the same way is not necessarily high on my list of priorities. Agreed. And that was Hellenica. Eniment. Eminent. Eniment. N? No. No. Walker played a game called Eminent Domain. Walker, what do you think about Eminent Domain? Thank you. <laughs> it was designed by Seth Jaffe. It's got a lot of buzz, Mark, when it first came out. Yes, it's it still, did. It's still getting... It's, it's an interesting deck builder. I wish there was uh, a little more art, a little more... It feels a lot like Core Worlds, whereas Core Worlds, every card is different. It has fantastic art and has a lot more theme feel to it. Eminent Domain does not have any of that, at least... At least the the core box that I played, I know it has about fifteen thousand to fourteen thousand expansions. Somewhere on that, somewhere on yeah. So I'm sure they all have you know more and interesting art, but you know you're doing your combat, you're doing your colonize. It's one of these things, and it's much like core worlds where you're either you're colonizing the planet or you're attacking the planet. So it's got that trade off between you know the two different numbers and trying to get you know those resources to take the planets because then the planets will give you victory points. I'd like to play it some more. It seems fairly interesting. It seems to move at a nice pace. And um, and with the expansions that were available to, available to me, it seemed like it would get more interesting the more stuff you added. I think you might have to teach me Eminent Domain. I've been spending years avoiding this game. And perhaps it's time that I gave it a try. We'll have to give it a try. Maybe we'll even stream it with our new up-to-date service. Ooh. Ooh, exciting. Is everyone excited? I'm getting palpitations. Ooh. And that was Eminent Domain. Yes, it's published by Tasty Minstrel Games. So those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, there is a game called Brazil coming out by Hans Gluck. And it looks pretty interesting. Very colorful. Nice wooden components. It's unfortunately yet another, you know, imperialistic view of, you know, the... The conquest, conquest of the Americas. Of, yes, but... We'll see. I'm I'm interested to see how it, it's it's being put out by a fantastic company. Yes, everything they put out is usually quite good. I'm a big fan of Hans and Gluck. Yes, yes. So we'll we'll have to see what it's like. It's been a while since I played a Hans and Gluck game. I should rectify that. Brazil Imperial. Yes, I actually clicked on it, wondering if it was an expansion for Imperial because Matt Gertz Games, Matt Gertz, the designer of Imperial, very popular in Portugal, 
also by extension popular in Brazil in the Portuguese speaking world. So I was wondering if this was special, some special variant. But of course, Matt Gertz has been working on Transatlantic 2, uh, the sequel to Transatlantic lately. So I, I, I guess it's not. This designer is Zé Mendes. I would like to mention the Kickstarter campaign for Upzone. I talked about this in Pledge of Indifference. These are the pop-up book terrain features. Setting up for a miniatures game or a role-playing game can be very, very, very tedious. It's one of the biggest time constraints, and it's a bit of a psychic burden, honestly, for me, as a tabletop miniatures wargamer, to have to set up the terrain and put all the pieces out and arrange things. This is simple. They are fold-up boards. You unfold them, haha, a pop-up building. Now, there's some question about how sturdy they are, but I don't play mass battle games anymore, and I certainly never had, I never played 40k or any of the other standard mass battle miniatures games. So it will certainly be able to, based on what I've seen, hold up, you know, four or five metal minis, which is about what I feel at a given time. For me, it's mostly just how much room it takes up once you put it away. 100%. Being able to transport it and being able to store it, it's basically the size of a small game box because they're just these fold up boards. Also, it is marvelously economical. Anybody that has been eyeing the tabletop miniatures game hobby and worried about the cost of entry, well, you can get an entire table of major terrain features that are fully, quote-unquote, painted because they're in full color for 100 bucks on the Upzone Kickstarter campaign, which is pennies on the dollar compared to what you would normally do for getting a whole bunch of professional terrain. And to say nothing of a detailed play mat with all the graphic features there. Now, are you going to need some scatter terrain for some game systems? Probably. I was about to say, and you can have like a small Tupperware of a bunch of, you know, accessory pieces that will just, you know, make it pop that much more, right? Absolutely. And so if you have been cons- eyeing that skirmish game that only needs a couple of figures per side, or maybe even as many 10 figures per side if you've been eyeing Infinity, this is absolutely a way to get into the hobby. And if you're like me, and just want a, 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 the ability to put out a quick and dirty table... And play more often. This is also definitely... I So I pledged for Upzone. I'm going to be getting a, a, a table's worth of terrain for my playings of Horizon War Zero Dark. And for Infinity, when and if I get back into that. But yeah, I'm a bit touch and go. I, I have a complicated relationship with Infinity. Similarly, there's uh, something related primarily for RPG players. But uh, I've seen a lot of people playing Rangers of Shadowdeep with just 2D printed terrain books. Immersive Battle Atlas is a Kickstarter campaign of a book full of maps for role-playing games on a square grid with all the art. So all you need to do is say, oh, I need an, an encounter on a pirate ship. Page 32. Bam. That's the map. With dry erase elements that you can then draw whatever details you want and so forth. There's also stickers that aren't actually stickers. They're just these decals that will adhere for ter- uh, further terrain elements, for the scatter terrain or details or what, what have you. Similarly, again, if you're an aspiring game master for role-playing systems and you want to put on a full tabletop, but you don't want to buy a whole bunch of different stuff, 100 bucks will get you pretty much whatever settings you're going to need. Honestly, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I wish that I was in my role-playing heyday like I was back in high school with all this stuff that's available now. Because back in the day, you either needed unlimited money or unlimited time and, and talent to get a good-looking table getting uh, getting together now. But now with all these accessories, it's really amazing what can get done. with compa- I, I know it seems really weird to say that $100 is comparatively little money, but compared to the alternatives in these fields, it is comparatively little money. So that's Upzone and the Immersive Battle Atlas. Those are light options. Now for a heavy option and Kickstarter Burn Cycle by Chip Theory Games. Super deluxe. Anyway, this is <laughs> humanity creating uh, intelligent AI robots and at the same time creating 
destructive atomic nuclear weapons and wiping themselves out. And then eventually the robots decide that they're going to give humans another chance and bring them back. But they're all very nervous and corruptible humans and fight back against the robots. So you play an elite mercenary robots fighting against the evil human corporations. And it's another super deluxe chip theory game. Check it out. If it's your thing, you might like it. I think there are too few games that are themed around pseudoscience. <laughs> and there's a game that is coming out that is going to be about being a medieval pharmacist. It's called Four Humors, and it is based on the pseudoscientific theory about how your personality was driven by the four humors, choleric, phlegmatic, sanguine, and melancholic, all based on the levels of bile that were being produced in various organs. And <laughs> Sounds lovely. Well, no, it, look, it's charming, and you you go and you, you try to fix people's decrepit personalities because their humors are out of alignment, or you go try to make sure that that phlegmatic is able to go achieve their life goals of being incredibly lazy. I am charmed by, by the theme and the way it's rendering, and I will now like to just repeat, repeat as a capper for this, I think there needs to be a game based on phlogiston. I think all pseudoscientific theories deserve to get their own game based on them. Someone designed a game about phlogiston challenge has been submitted so meeple br is bringing out a game mark called paper dungeons i'm not you know big on roll and write either no one is here is big on roll and write games but this looks fairly interesting it's like a dungeon delving roll and write game and you create your own little dungeon and i haven't looked too much into it just saw the images but it's something that i think i'm going to try out it seems kind of interesting paper dungeons and to Quick last things, Black Friday sales are starting up, so if you want to increase your collection, now is probably the time. Take if a you look. want to increase your collection, it's always, always the time. There you go. Anyway, lots of Black Friday sales will be starting up soon. Take a look around. And lastly, I'm going to put a new rule in the So Very Wrong About Games book. You no longer, no more D20s, Mark, and no more, you cannot, <laughs> you can no longer uh, base a game on a two-minute scene from a movie. I'm not even going to talk about the. Act. I'm not even going to talk about the game, but the, you, this has been done multiple times where there's like a sub scene or like a you know an offshoot of a movie, and you know people you know and they create a whole game around that that two minute scene. Yeah, that, that's not allowed either. Done. That wasn't your problem with Aliens Bug Hunt. No, that was that was no because Alien Bug Hunt's based on like the whole movie. Mm, Say if it was like uh, I don't think so. Well, it was based on a major like a fairly okay. large okay. segment of the movie. All right, Let's see. All right, all right. Say if there's a whole game based on just, like, the one-on-one -on -one fight between the Queen and Ripley and the robot. I'd play that. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, like, even more mundane like that. I, how about the one where Ripley was, like, plugging in wires to the, the android to try to get him to talk when she was on the prison planet? There you go, the whole game based around... Well, first of all, that, the problem there is that you're making a game based on Alien 3, which no one should do. Moving on, Moving that is the on. news and why it doesn't matter, also the Alien Fan Podcast. Moving on to the topic of the week, which is boxes. Boxes. I know, I know everyone's probably just fast-forwarded this, this part, because, you know, forget the rest, it's all about... It's a big deal! It's the boxes, man. No, it's a big I deal! I know, I'm only kidding. <laughs> I'm going to start this off with, unless you have like a big, you know, what I want to talk about at the beginning. Nope. What's the box for, Mark? Why, why do we need a box? <laughs> uh, is this other a rhetorical the, question? Other, well, other than the obvious, it holds the game. But I mean, 
I think it's the like the art and the showing and the showmanship of it is like for the store. I think in the in the world we live in now, people are looking up games before they they. It's like they know what's coming out. They know the designer. They know the publisher, and what the box looks like usually doesn't matter too much. Really, I think more and more games are now getting on to big box store shelves. It's yes, and so for a lot of these things, I think the the, the box appeal is significant, and I, I, that's, I, that's what I'm getting at. It's, okay. like, it's for on the on the store shelves. It's for the customers that don't know about the game when they see it, or you know that those two seconds that people give people that people give uh, internet things attention to as they're scrolling through the online store. You know that thumbnail that pops up. It's got to look just right, or else they're just going to scroll. So you're right saying by you're it. saying you've evolved past the box looking good being an issue for you. For me personally, yes. I find this strange given your many comments about GMT games. This is a very strange statement no, you're making I, about I yourself. Like, I personally don't care about GMT games. I am just completely confused. Then why on, do you rag on them all the time? Because I'm sure a company wants to make money. <laughs> and just right, because it's of exactly what I just said. I will, take you, I will take you at face value. I will say this. I appreciate having an attractive box on my game shelf after I bought it. No, I, I'm not saying I don't want attractive games. Sure. I'm just saying that I'm, the whole basis around having it attractive is so it attracts attention of people in stores. Well, I, I'm not necessarily sure that's true because my desire to own a game might be influenced by how attractive it is overall as a physical object. And that might have nothing to do with the initial shelf appeal. I might have more to do with the shelf appeal after I've got it home. So maybe this is a distinction without a difference, but to me, I think that there, there, there's a, a subtle difference there. Uh, I, I would also consider, though, in terms of its sheer shelf appeal, other than just its, its visual quality, is uh, I can tell you right now that boxes of strange sizes and of, of unwieldy dimensions uh, are a big turnoff for me and will influence my purchasing decisions accordingly. All right, so I have, yes, so on size. Let's finish off art very quickly. Okay, sure, I don't sure, mean sure. to go back, but I just have, no, I, I want to go back later. So how about these games that have... Uh, like matching numbers, you know, as they go up on your shelf, you know, they go one through 14 mm -hmm. or they create a panorama or, you know, matching like boxes that, you know, will look nicely on your shelf. What's your, what's your thought on those? Well, it's weird. I don't necessarily approve of the numbering system because I feel that that's an overt appeal to a sort of collector's instinct that I, I, I feel is borderline manipulative. But I will tell you that if there's a uniformity of box design, I do really, really like it when I get to put them all next to each other on the shelf, and yeah, it makes me ha it makes me happy in my most secretive places. I specifically am thinking of Avalon Hill games uh, that all have those bookshelf games. I'm thinking of GMT games. I'm thinking of DVG games who basically have one or two standard box sizes, and so they stack up real nice next to each other. And I'm sure you you at times have felt the same way about the FFG Square Box. Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah. So the the whole numbering thing, I I'm not a huge fan of, but if you you as a company have a definite uniformity of box design, I am weak to that. All right, now onto the size, like you said. So uh, will it fit on your shelf, and does it fit the game properly? Like, is it way too big for what the components come in the game? Yes. The classic example of this is for sale. There have been a whole bunch of different versions of for, sa for sale for a while. It looked like there were competitions about how to, who could make bigger and bigger boxes. The English version of attribute is also another offender. Like, I get it. Some games can only get so small. And again, in terms of shelf appeal, because yes, it's primarily marketing. And attribute and for sale are just a small stack of cards. 
in the case of for sale, there's a small amount of tokens. But yes, the boxes are way bigger than they need to be, and that's a big turnoff. Yeah, I know. In in some cases, people talk about uh, like the X wing, uh, X wing fighters or uh, single miniatures, and why they're in such big boxes and just. I'm not sure if I talked about this before, but it's just a, a store thing, right? To, right? to stop shoplifting and stuff like that. They have to put them in bigger boxes, so they just can't be put in people's pockets. Stuff like that. But games, I don't think, fall into that category. I would hope not. And I, in just researching this, I've seen many people, how they just cut boxes in half and sort of like custom the box down to like half its size that it needs to be. Yes, the, and, person, and still... the person who traded me Indigo. The Reiner Knizia tile yeah, layer exactly. uh, chopped the box roughly in half. I respect their having done that. It works just fine. I saw someone do a Splendor game quarter of its size. It just had the S, you know, you, know, you barely even read the name because it was so small. Well, you did the thing when you went on your walkabout where you took a game box and you just saw how many other games you could stuff inside it. I got 13, 13 games in a, a Codenames box. Yeah. Yep. Good for you. I, I also appreciate it sometimes even when a game dispenses with boxes entirely. I do like the love letter form factor. It's kind of cute. doesn't really sit on a shelf very well, but it's kind of cute. And then there's the information that you put on the box. How much information do you put on the box? Lies. Usually lies. And where you put the information on the box, right? Lies all Because if you put everything on the back and then you run the risk of your box being gorded, which is what we say in our little circle when someone takes your nicely you know, organized counter box and they flip it upside down because they want to see the pretty picture or how many players it takes or whatever. And you hear the clink, clink, clink of 300 pieces being dumped out inside the box. And, and then the, the weird grating sound, it's like this, <laughs> like two rocks being <laughs> smashed together, which are our teeth grating. You know, it's telling that you bring this up and I don't even think of boxes as containing any useful information in that sense because they usually involve uh other than player count player count is useful but even that's often lies you just have to remember at what counts it's good there's the playing time which is a lie almost always complete lie there's the age restriction which quite frankly we don't pay attention to anyway whether it's a lie or not and then there's the text on the back which is usually repeated in the rulebook, and or, in the case of most Euros, is so stultifyingly boring and or irrelevant. It's like, aha, this European country is colonizing this area of the world this time. How will you impress the local potentates? It's like, I've read that 50 times if I've read it once, and I don't need to read it again. I, I don't know, I put this in some in the, at the end for some odd reason. One thing I wish they did put on the box is the edition. Like, not if it's, like, the second edition or whatever, even if it's the printing edition. Yes. Right? Just because I'm tired of, you know, reading through the forms or whatever and says, oh, you'll know if you have the third edition because the fourth card of the ninth deck will have a black border. And that's You're how absolutely you, right. That drives me insane. Can you not just, please, just put a version number, even put, like, dots somewhere, like, three dots at the back mean it's the third printing and then we know what's going on. I agree. I'm surprised you haven't mentioned perhaps the single most important consideration for most gamers, and I know it's a consideration for you with respect to box sizing, and that is what I would entitle the Calyx Imperative. Yes, it must fit. It must fit on a Calyx. <laughs> in, in the cube, and it doesn't have to fit, uh, it can be a little bit longer. A little bit. Right? It, you know, because you, you have your Calyx off the wall slightly by about an inch. Right? And it so, can overhang by a little bit too. On the, no, no, not on the front. 
on the eh, back. No, I'm, no, I'm no, going to no. give people a little bit. No, no. Okay, okay. When I'm you sorry. Look at it, it's got to be this nice flat wall, and uh, you have it at about, <laughs> about I think it's uh, two point three inches. Because <laughs> no, be, Axe and Allies boxes, they all fit nicely if you if you just have it off the wall slightly. Okay, and it just does. It there's no reason against it. I think this all came up. No, I want to. Okay. Uh, yes, and most game companies are doing this now. They're, yes. Instead of building long, they're building taller, and this will lead in. And they very and they very explicitly now are talking about calyxes. I remember in particular the Too Many Bones box, the base game, did not fit on a calyx. It was too wide, and it's a square box in a, in a cube. So if it's too wide, it's just not going to fit. Same with the Catacombs box. That's where they just did redid new right. one because the old one didn't fit in. So right. they, in the next edition, they did a different box. And every time you see someone talking about an all-in-one storage solution, whether or not it's all-in-one, it's a massive big box to store it all. They're like, don't worry. It will hold sleeve cards, and it will fill it fit on a Calyx. Yeah, two imperatives. I, I'm not saying the Calyx is is the best storage system or the most. It's nice just really common. That, exactly. It's yeah. the one that's mostly used. It's pretty well the staple in in collections. That being good or bad, who knows? But I don't use Calyxes to store games anymore. But I would never in a million years counsel a board game publisher to consider printing a game that will not fit on a Calyx. It's just asking for trouble. Agreed. Speaking of that, I put this at the end, but I'm going to talk about it now. Someone needs to create an app. Maybe it's already out there. I don't know, Mark. Where you, uh, it pulls your collection off of Board Game Geek. And then you can have some sliders. How do you want your games organized? Because designers are going to be awesome. And they're going to t- give you the exact width of your game, of, of the game. So it pulls your collection off and shows you how to organize it in the Calyx. Because it knows the 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 width of all the games and says, Oh, I want all the two player. Please sort it by one by player count or sort of by something. And it'll just say, here's how you get the best use out of your Calyx. Wow. See, and I don't think it would be hard. I don't, I look, I have no idea how hard it would be, but it would certainly be awesome. It would be awesome. Do you know what I really like when the box is part of the game? Yes. I have many games listed. I only listed the ones that I've played before. Slide Quest. We Sl- both played Slide Quest. Same thing with Looney Quest. Looney Quest. I have that written down here. I I didn't. I thought it was Looney Quest. I had Doodle, and then I changed it to Doodle Quest. But anyway, yes, Looney Quest. A great. It was like a clear piece piece of plastic, and it was like a video game. Yes. But, but you didn't get to put your clear piece of plastic over the main sheet. You sort of had to look up at the main sheet and sort of draw your little maze or your shooting, and then after everyone was draw finished drawing it, you'd like put it over top and see how your spatial puzzle worked it was that is we should do you still have that game no unfortunate but i would love to play it again <laughs> and the it had the integrated score track a lot of different games use the game box as a score track dixit does that a beautiful score track for dixit uh i'm gonna read the card game actually in that case it was just obviously just going on the cheap they're like eh, we'll put it on the back who cares but then there was ice cool yes ice cool made a very very good use of the game box as part of a game component on guard which you have it uses a big part of the game box. Yes. A uh, game that I used to play called Niagara. Yes. Played on top of the box and then the falls would go off the edge. Games Workshop did two games where you would throw the dice into the box and depending on where they landed and what you rolled, where oh, they I hit or miss. So yes. One was called Space Fleet and the other one was called Ultramarines. I played both of those. That were Those are interesting ways to use the box. Absolutely. And to finish my list off, it's one that I haven't played yet. But when I was looking at these things, uh, I saw it, and Mark, I need to play this game. Star Wars Return of the Jedi 
battle at Sarlacc's pit. <laughs> so what this is, you build this thing above your box. And I'm of the opinion that games shouldn't be based on scenes in a movie that are two minutes long. <laughs> and, 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 uh... and the box <laughs> funnels into the lid, but the funnel is detailed as the Sarlacc pit, and then it has the, the sand barge at the top, and you move the guys <laughs> around, and they'll fall in, and they'll go down into the... Does the box burp? I wish that would be amazing. <laughs> well, that actually leads to to a point of question I have for you because you mentioned this in passing. What do you feel about box farts? What is your opinion on box farts? They're very funny. Really? I love them. Okay. Do you find them funny because they sound like flatulence, or no, do you just like the sound? A, I I think it just it's that board game sound, right? It's like a new. It's usually only happens with a newer box, right? Because they're usually it. Fits, I guess it fits tighter once you know you you know you move it around, it loosens up or whatever. But it's nice new crisp lid goes on <laughs> and makes that noise, and it's it's very for, satisfying for me. New crisp board game is associated with smell, whether it's the box or components inside. I don't like box farts, and it's purely because I just don't like the sound. I and it has nothing to do with its association with flat flatulence. Because I actually don't think that box farts sound very much like farts. At least the human farts that I've ever heard. I think we're getting a little bit... All right, let's move on. We're going to get age-restricted here. But All no, right. I just I just don't find it a pleasant sound. It's true. All right. On that same topic, though. How the box opens. All right? So yes. So companies need to be brought to justice. The ones that have, like, like the flaps that... Some some board games open up, like, like food. You know how they have, like, the flip tops on the side? It's just, like, the... And you, like, sort of shake the box contents <laughs> out. But there's no lid. You just sort of open <laughs> yes. the box and, and the stuff. Well, what I hate more, and this is partially because I have a very bad habit, which I'll talk about in a second, is when the texture of the printing on the box is such that the friction between the box lid and the box bottom is so potent that even when the, box, the, the game is fully loaded, it's difficult to get the lid off, which dovetails with my personal habit, and this is just a bad habit, and I need to stop doing it. I nest box tops with box bottoms because I it, it it's just it's not even an OCD thing. It's just like I want things to be tidied away, and I figure an errant box lid and an errant box bottom is just twice as much surface area than is necessary. And so I put the box bottom back inside the lid, and usually it's okay. Sometimes it's awkward, and sometimes it's a huge problem where you need five people standing around helping you to get the thing separated again. But sometimes it's a fantastic thing. Because I'll have this at the very end, but I'll talk about it now, is that as well as the app for, for storing your Calyx, someone also has to uh, invent a lid alarm, <laughs> right? So <laughs> when you start packing your game away into the lid and get it all nicely, you know, even and perfectly stored, and you realize that you've just loaded the lid. It's true. You know, the alarm would go off and stop you from doing that. And what, that what you do stops you from doing that. You won't load the lid if the box is inside it. So it's it's sometimes it could be a good thing. I suppose that's true. Uh, two games that I wish more companies did this. I think it's uh, Waterdeep. Scoundrels of Waterdeep. Okay. Lords of Waterdeep. Lords of Waterdeep. Yes. And, and the Scythe Big Box. The games that open from the center when they're super oh, yeah. big. And they slide up from the middle instead of right from the bottom. I wish when you had a super big box like that, it's impossible to open because it's so gigantor. I wish it had the seam in the middle as opposed Those to... Those are pleasant, yes. yes. I don't know what it is that I like about them, but whenever I see a box doing that, I think, oh, that's kind of cool. I guess it's just that it's unusual. Yeah, well, it's probably very expensive, too. I imagine it can't be very simple, but yes, I, I, I do approve of it. 
art on the inside of the lid. I wish more companies you know, utilize the inside of the lid. You, you're so pleased whenever you see that. I am. I don't know why, but I, sometimes when I was thinking about it today, even if it wasn't art, I wish that maybe why not put like the turn summary so you could sort of on the inside of the box lid. Well, as you could see in sometimes when people do uh, uh, reviews or. Uh, I'm not familiar with the review process. Anyway, when people do videos on games, sometimes they prop up the lid inside the box, right? So what if you had that turned, you know, towards the table and on the inside of the box had like a turn summary or something useful inside the box lid? Not a bad idea. That would be interesting. I mean, I understand why they don't do it. It is it is a, a more expensive printing procedure, but I don't know by how much. So it might be something to do. I've I've complained in the past about games that don't use available real estate, but I guess you're right. Uh, the inside of the box lid could be usable real estate, or at least the very least, so long as it's not the only place where you find it. You know, if they're going to say, well, we don't have any player aids, but uh, use the inside of the box because it'll take up space on the table. All right. Quality of the box. Is it at least strong enough to support itself? Like once you put too much stuff in it, it just like bows on the bottom or or the corners break out. And or is it strong enough to uh, support other boxes being piled on top of it? Like it should be at least strong enough to do that. Yeah, so I have a couple of games that run afoul of that. One of them is, in point of fact, Asgard's Chosen. It was it was printed on the cheap. The components of Asgard's Chosen are very bad. Actually, I should mention that the Handwerker very kindly is going to be printing up uh, little 15-millimeter scale Vikings to replace the Viking figures there with his 3D printer. So I'm going to have nice little components to replace the awful Vikings that are included in Asgard's Chosen. But the box is of relatively poor quality, and so it was bowing almost immediately. And then, of course, there's Lupin Louie, which is in a very, very, very flimsy cardboard box. It is not up to your normal standards. And there's, it doesn't have a a, a a top and a bottom. It's not a separatable box like that. It has a flap. That, that's what I was talking about earlier. Exactly. Yeah, flat, that's not that's not right. It, it's, it's unfortunate, and it means that structurally it's not very sound. So when I stack my games vertically, and so it always has to be at the top, otherwise it's going to get crushed. All right, so how about if a game gets released with an expansion at the same time? At the same time? Oh, you mean like Kickstarter? Like Kickstarters. Should the box be big enough to fit both? Yes. Exactly. But that this being said, when I was putting this in, a lot of people purposely keep the expansions separate. Who are these people? I they are crazy people, Mark. Like separating out the components so that you can module so there's a degree of modularity, so you can either play with or without the expansion. Of course. Fine. Whatever. But the the whether you're transporting one game or whether you're transporting ten if a game has multiple boxes, the odds of my wanting to bring it anywhere, even if it's from my basement to my table, plummets. And plus, these people must have tons of space. How do they get fit all this stuff on their shelves with these multiple expansions and boxes and such? If it doesn't fit in one box, Mark, you know me, out it goes. <laughs> I've actually found, I've developed a number of tricks to help with the one box consolidation. This is getting a little bit far afield, but anyway. I call it the Bjorkman Cradle. You know those plastic lids that sometimes go on top of minis trays? All you need to do is invert them, attach a ri attach ribbons or a string or something to, to put handles, and now what you have is a removable little tray. You can load up the 20 million baggies inside the tray, and so if you need quick, a quick access to the rules or the board or you just need a place to, to sort out little baggies, rather than, for example, a game the, the two games where I've done this have been the Aftershock expansion for Street Masters, which has a bag for every enemy faction and a bag for the heroes and a bag for this and a bag for that, and for Lords of Hellas, which is, you know, a million expansions all in one box. 
instead of opening the box lid and then saying, like, this bag goes over here and this bag goes over here and bag, 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 bag. You just lift it all out. There are all the bags. Done. It's marvelous. I recommend it. The Bjorkman Cradle, TM. Finally, I would like to note my final observation is that there's a certain form factor of game that has gone the way of the dinosaur. And that is the Fantasy Flight Coffin-style box. used to be far more prevalent, in part because Fantasy Flight used to put them out. And as somebody who trades games, this is basically the kiss of death. Because so few boxes will accommodate... It's not just that they're big. Big is one thing. But they're so long, and they're always one or two inches longer than your longest available box. It is just the ironclad rule. You don't have to tell me, Mark. Yeah. This summer, I had to get rid of like eight of the damn things. Yeah. You no, know, I hear you. It's it's awful. This is one of the reasons why Woogie offloaded uh, Piraten Billiard to me, which is this square box that is very big. He gave it to me on the basis that he couldn't trade it to anybody because he didn't have any boxes big enough for it. He thinks I did him a favor. I think he did me a favor because now I have Piraten Billiard and I have room to store it. But I do know, for example, I will never be able to ship it anywhere, very much like those stupid FFG coffin boxes. Some of them, you said you got rid of a whole bunch of FFG coffin boxes. Some of them you got rid of by offloading onto me. I I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I don't want to play them. still have two. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that the new style of box, both from FFG and from a lot of Kickstarters, is, well, we'll take the same square footprint. From To my mind, for whatever reason, it's the Ticket to Rise Sides box. I don't know why I think that, but it, it was probably the first game that I had that was that size, and you start seeing them everywhere. Well, rather than building out, they build them up, which is great. Because they're easier to store, easier to ship, and they take up the same amount of volume, but they're not just weird and ungainly. Agreed. Were we going to do inserts or no? I thought you said something about inserts. We don't have to. Okay. I have one, literally one sentence. Sure. And then we're just going to talk about inserts very quickly. And I think we talked about them before. I just, I think in just the way, I don't think I'll buy an insert for quite a while, just for the way we consume games for right now. But I just think for how I feel right now, they just have to be, uh, they actually have to improve gameplay. Like, I would not get the scythe insert now, right? Because... Everything in Scythe goes on the board at in the middle of the game. Nothing really goes on the side. A few, I'm sure there are the resources, but those are the two only pieces that I would want. So it's something that actually has to help you put the game away faster and or set it up faster. If, if the insert does that, then I'll consider it. Actually, final note from me. I get a strange glow of joy, independently of the need to store things, from games that are very, very, very teeny, but have big strategic or or tactical decision-making involved. You know, a very, very tiny, tiny game that is not a filler. Uh, the, the two that spring to mind are basically almost all the PAX games, except for PAX Premier 2nd Edition, which is actually a, a reasonable size box, but it's just, especially PAX Ren, this tiny, tiny little box that is this very, very involved game. And Titan's Tactics. I, I like it when there's a skirmishy game, especially skirmish games, because a lot of very simple skirmish games get very, very big. And I like some of those. Gatefall I love... Uh, you know, that, that, that's a-okay. I don't mind it, but I do appreciate that there are some games that are just ultra teeny, but still, uh, packed with quality gaming independently of being a filler. There are tons of brilliant fillers. This isn't just quality. It's about the scope of the game, if you will. Agreed. 
So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.